Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the work of artist Harry Sontag captures the people and natural beauty of Key Largo in the mid-20th century. He was a little bit ahead of his time with his color. You don't see that in a lot of paintings from that time period, so he uh, actually was painting what he saw. As the final flight of the shuttle Discovery gets underway, we'll discuss the history of NASA, and we'll hear historic interviews with African-American railroad workers. You know, I used to see this, these old guys on on the railroad. I've always said it was a whole lot like the Chang guy. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Largo by Bertie Higgins was inspired by the 1948 John Huston film starring Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Edward G. Robinson, and Lionel Barrymore, which was based on the 1939 Broadway play Key Largo by Maxwell Anderson. The song, film, and play all depict a romantic place of escape, with the film and play adding elements of mystery and danger. The song Key Largo actually quotes another Humphrey Bogart film, Casablanca. Very few shots of Key Largo are used in the film, and the play could have been set in any remote Florida location during a hurricane. Key Largo of the mid-20th century is preserved much more faithfully in the watercolors of artist Harry Sontag. Chuck Faulkner owns a collection of Harry Sontag's work consisting of 162 watercolors, an oil painting, three charcoal drawings, and a copper etching. Faulkner has also collected newspaper articles about and photographs of Harry Sontag. 
Well, Harry came to the Keys about 1949, and he came to the area when it wasn't a tourist area. The Upper Keys was mainly fishermen, so he captured a lot of the local fishermen as far as in the fishing industry and he, the natural landscapes that hadn't been developed yet as they are today. So he captured it before it, it got evolved into the, what it is now. Most of the collection is watercolors. Um, he got a lot of the vibrant oranges and the sunsets. He captured them very well. Um, Sort of colors, uh, I think he was a little bit ahead of his time with his color. You don't see that in a lot of paintings from that time period. So he uh, actually was painting what he saw and captured it well. Sontag's work has been critically acclaimed, and he's historically significant in South Florida as the first independent artist to establish a gallery on Key Largo. We had done a little research, and even with the Key West Historical Society down there, and they had co-op galleries in the 60s. And we come to the determination that uh, Harry Sontag had the first individually owned gallery in the Florida Keys that was owned by an individual, and it was just an abandoned building, but he turned it into the Key Largo Art Gallery. Originally from New York City, Harry Sontag also spent time in California, Arizona, Washington, New England, and Wisconsin before coming to Florida. Chuck Faulkner. Uh, Harry was born in uh, Manhattan, and he was born in 1900. He attended the Pratt Art Institute in uh, 1916. He was 16 years old. And then he moved on to the Art Students League. He went there from uh, 1917 and 18. And then I have his records. He had actually come back to the Art Students League in uh, 1918 through 1922. So he started at a young age. And then he left New York, we believe, in the mid-40s, came to Key Largo around 1949. When Harry Sontag arrived in Key Largo in 1949, he lived very modestly, moving into an abandoned shack that he repaired with driftwood. With no electricity or running water, Sontag lived on fish that he caught and vegetables that he grew in a garden. Well, uh, I was talking with the historical people down in the Keys, and we come to determine that he actually, the building was probably an abandoned shack that was in disarray, and he sort of propped it up and rebuilt it a little bit, but it was like a little 8 by 10 shanty, lived down by the water, he grew his own little garden, vegetables, and uh, then in uh, 1951 he had taken over an abandoned key lime packing shack. It was located on US-1, where the main traffic would, he could be seen, and he opened the Key Largo Art Gallery. In addition to acquiring an extensive collection of Harry Sontag's artwork, Chuck Faulkner has obtained historic photographs that document how the artist lived and worked in Key Largo. A lot of the photos that uh, are in the collection were taken uh, from tourists that had come through, and they would take the film back home, and they would send him the pictures. And then there was a couple out of Miami um, that befriended Harry, and they would come down on the weekends. Uh, it was the Hadleys, and they were actually students at the University of Miami. Uh, Jim Handley was taking photography, so he sort of documented Harry's life. Uh, he took pictures of his shack, had Harry working in his garden, and then he also went up to the gallery on US-1 and had pictures of Harry working in the gallery and stuff. So we have a great visual documentation of Harry's lifestyle and also his working around the gallery. A 1952 article in the Miami Herald quotes Harry Sontag as saying, Art is the universal language, and my desire is to bring beauty to the multitude so that people may realize how lovely is this world. While Sontag's work was popular among tourists in Key Largo in the late 1940s and early 1950s, his work was largely forgotten until it was rediscovered by Chuck Faulkner. There are 170 original uh, pieces of artwork in the collection, and the collection was found in a storage unit in uh, Central Florida here in 1992, and it was acquired from a woman who had 
found the collection um, in 1960. Uh, they, her and her husband had found it in the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, under a bed in a rooming house. They called the landlord, and he didn't have any interest in it. So they brought it back from the Virgin Islands to Central Florida and threw it in storage, and it laid there for 32 years. She was cleaning out her storage unit, and that's when uh, we stumbled on it in the storage unit, and she was basically going to throw this into the trash. Once Faulkner started displaying his art collection, he discovered more work by Sontag and continued gathering information. A woman named Lyda Hadley was particularly helpful. We had done an exhibit at, at the City Hall in Kissimmee, and the uh, Orlando Sentinel had picked up on it and wrote about the exhibit. And another local woman had called and said that her and her husband had known Sontag in Miami. And she had more information about Sontag. She had uh, some proof sheets of photographs. She had original watercolor. And she had written a story in 1952 about Harry Sontag. Um, it's called Portrait of an Artist. And she had given me, given me this information. And then six weeks after I met her, she passed away. The majority of Harry Sontag's pieces depict people living and working in Key Largo, as well as the island's natural beauty. Some of the places captured in his art still exist today. Yeah, Harry's uh, lived just north of the Mandalay Marina. It's the south edge of Rock, uh, south edge of Key Largo in Rock Harbor, and uh, he frequented a place called the Mandalay Marina. And so I've got about a dozen images of the Mandalay, and he captured the local fishermen working around the Mandalay Marina. Um, and there was another place just south in Tavernier. He uh, painted was uh, Rusty's, and it was a Tavernier Creek Marina which is still there today also. Key Largo is the largest and the first of the Florida Keys connected to the mainland by US-1. Harry Sontag also made it all the way to Key West. There's just one that we can identify in Key West, and that was an art exhibit that he set up in 1951. And it's actually an identifiable location, which is uh, in front of the Customs House down there. And uh, we believe it was one of the first clothesline art shows that they used to feature in Key West. Images of Sontag's native New York are also part of Faulkner's collection. Sontag's views of New York are mostly in grays and darker colors, while his Key Largo works include the pinks and oranges of Florida skies and the greens and blues of its waters. Sontag disappeared from Florida in the mid-1950s, and his watercolors indicate he went to the Virgin Islands. There's about, um, I would say, about 8 to 10 images of New York. Um, there's a couple that feature an art show in New York. And then also I have some images after he left the Florida Keys uh, in the St. Thomas Virgin Islands area. There's probably eight or ten of the Virgin Islands. Sontag told people that he had bad luck with fires. A destructive fire at his New York gallery was reportedly his reason for leaving the city, and he later said a fire in Florida destroyed his work here. There is no evidence to support Sontag's claims, and in fact, they can be refuted. Chuck Faulkner. Yeah, in the 1952 um, newspaper, the Miami Daily News, they had done uh, an article interviewing him about opening the gallery, and he had said three years prior coming to the Keys, he had lost his entire studio in New York to a fire. Um, we don't know if that was actually a fire, but in 1955, there was an actual fire in the new Key Largo Art Gallery, and it was totally destroyed, and Sontag said kept in the building was his entire collection of life's work which we know wasn't burnt up because it was found five years later in the Virgin Islands under a bed in a rooming house. Tourists in the late 1940s and early 1950s were sometimes shocked at the high prices that Sontag demanded for his work, but Faulkner says that many were willing to pay. 
Yeah, the original prices that were on some of the originals were like $55 and $65. And in today's market, I would estimate it to be like six to $700 per painting. And so people probably thought he was a little crazy. I mean, he was in this shack selling this artwork for high dollar, and but he was determined. He wouldn't come down on his prices, and if you came in and offered him lower, he'd just tell you, get out of here, leave me alone. Like most people in Florida, Sontag was not native to the state. The photographs of Sontag in Faulkner's collection show the artist gradually adapting to life in Florida. Some of the photos show him, and you can see he has street clothes on, and then as the time went on, you can see he got into more sandals and the khaki shirts and, you know, the cutoffs and stuff. But, uh, yeah, when he came down, he definitely had a, had a change. Chuck Faulkner will be discussing the art of Harry Sontag Saturday, November 6th at 2 p.m. at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Sontag's work will remain on display for the Coco Village Gallery Walk the evening of November 6th, beginning at 5 p.m. We had it all Just like Bogey in the car Starring in our own lately show Sailing away to Key Largo Here's looking at you And all the things we did We can find it once again Hello Just like they did in Key Largo We had it all Just like Bogey and the car This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and you'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. With the final mission of the Space Shuttle Discovery underway this week, the end of the shuttle program is one step closer. Janie Gould has this look at NASA history. Cape Canaveral has been at the epicenter of America's space program for more than half a century. Even in 19th century fiction, Florida was seen as the place where space flights would be launched. Historian and author Robert Taylor teaches courses about the history of the space age. When Jules Verne wrote his novel, From the Earth to the Moon, he put the first space launch platform near Tampa. Just the wrong coast, but the right well, area. Close, but beginning around 1950, Central Florida would be the center for America's space efforts. How was Cape Canaveral selected? What happened, initially, American uh, rocket work was done in New Mexico, but there were problems with uh, security. What if a missile got away? If you launch a missile out over the ocean, if something goes wrong, it falls in the ocean. There were surveys of sites, some in Georgia, and eventually the Canaveral area proved to be perfect. Fairly isolated, good transportation, and all pre-existing military installations. The first actual launch was in 1950. 1950? I was thinking more like the end of the 50s. Nope. It was unmanned, and it was 1950. Was it successful? Yes. 
But then there really wasn't anything significant done after that until after Sputnik. Well, Sputnik, of course, was the catalyst. The Russians are arch enemies in the Cold War, orbit a satellite that sped across the United States every 90 minutes. It was a direct challenge to America's idea of its own technological superiority. What did the space race do to Brevard County? Oh, it's just an explosion. People came from all over the country. The population doubled, doubled again, doubled again. There are stories of rocket engineers living in tool sheds, sleeping in drainage pipes because there was no housing. Little towns like Cocoa Beach became internationally famous. It was an economic engine that seemingly would have no end. But then when Apollo ended, things changed. Well, there were already budget cuts coming in NASA's budget for manned space even before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. The last several Apollo missions to the moon were actually canceled for budget reasons. The hardware was later used in the Skylab program. It was, I believe, supposed to go as high as possibly Apollo 20. They were canceled. Congress approved the shuttle program when one of the Apollo lunar missions was ongoing. The astronauts walking on the moon were told the Congress to approve the shuttle. But it took quite a bit of time to develop the shuttle. The first one didn't fly until 1981. And then it had some setbacks after that, of course. The shuttle proved to be one of the most complicated, if not the most complicated machine humans have ever built, which meant there was more that could go wrong. Quite possibly more was expected of it than it could deliver. Of course, we have the setback of the Challenger accident. Right. On balance, would you say the shuttle program was a success? Yes, I would. It did what it was designed to do. gave us access to low Earth orbit and made possible the construction of the International Space Station. And now that there are only going to be three more shuttle flights, what do you think is going to be next for space? This is a huge question. We are, in the United States, I think, at really one of those watershed moments where we have to decide what our role in space will be. Our goals, which we set out even before Sputnik, were to build a space shuttle, have a space station, and go to the moon. Well, we've done those things. What now? I think that we have to maintain our manned space efforts. I think that a country is judged by its willingness to take risks. Even if we decide to scale back, other countries are going ahead. Robert Taylor heads the Humanities and Communications Department at Florida Institute of Technology in Brevard County. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Beginning in the late 1800s, the work of the many men who built and maintained the railroad lines that crisscrossed our state represented an important part of the African-American experience in Florida. Although wages were good considering the times, the prevailing climate of racial inequality, the harsh physical conditions, and the long hours made these jobs difficult. Bill Dudley listens as three of the men tell their stories. In those days, the, most of your track lining and leveling was did by sight. Big bars, you stick under the track, and you, you did it in unison. Section foreman would call out some kind of a chant, and then they would all hit together in unison. It was beautiful. Sliding them in, sliding them in, sliding them on. Yeah, you could take a break, but not very long. <laughs> Water keg, you go and get your drink. Foreman would be the he'd, he'd be right there. 
Joe Maxwell was 74 when he was interviewed in his home near Groveland in Lake County in 1993. He had worked clearing right away as a teenager in the late 1930s. You know, I used to see this, these old guys on the, on the railroad. And I, I've always said it was a whole lot like the chain gang. I started on the railroad uh, the second day of 1928. January the 2nd, 1928. I started out as a water boy. I was about 15 years old. Willie James Polite was 91 years old when interviewed that same year. I first started out at $1.44 a day. It was, say, eight hours, but you're making about eight and a half. Foreman wanted a feather in his hat, and he'd cheat you out of that half an hour for the company. So I'm telling you just like it is. I worked as maintaining the track. Keeping up the right away. Frank Johnson started on the railroad in the late 1940s. Well, we made a fair wages, but we had no, didn't have very much choice. We had to work. All black guys doing the work. Very hard. Johnson and Polite grew up in Trilby, a small town about an hour's drive up U.S. 301 northeast of Tampa. Today, little more than a country crossroads, Trilby was once an important hub in the Atlantic Coastline Railroad system. For a black man, the railroad was an alternative to picking oranges or working in the nearby Cummer and Sons sawmill. Well, I don't know. That's the only industry we had coming through Trippett during that time. And I, didn't, I never did learn how to pick fruit. No, it wasn't too much to do long in them days, but it was railroad or either sawmill. And I never did work around the sawmill. My first job was a railroad, and I, I worked for the railroad company 47 years. Well, when I first started, I was working six days a week, eight hours a day. We probably was getting a dollar sixty cents a day at that time. That was about the highest wages for black people then, long in those days, railroad. One of the top. If you were working on the railroad then, why, you was considered pretty well off. In the 1930s, the track crews, or section gangs, worked six days a week in the Florida sun and sometimes in cold or rainy weather. It's pretty hard, hot. You'd be in water. You know, if you wanted to ditch clean out, you had to do it. There were times we had to work in the rain. There was no reason. It was not necessary to work in the rain all day, all day set rain. And it, the foreman would not let us get in the, out of the rain. And we worked there all day. And one man, he walked away. We had about 20 men in the group. One man, he laid his tool down and walked. And that was a real bad incident and the rest of the guys was afraid to quit to walk away because they would have been fired it was no protection from the union it rained on the railroad then not not you it's like in the army it was rain on the army but not you no the white men were the boss men <laughs> you had to keep a low profile in everything you couldn't talk back to a white man no, you couldn't. What he said went. That was it. These men had very little education. They were only used to manual labor, and manual labor required that they be outside most of the time doing jobs that were not very comfortable. Sherry Sherrod Dupree is professor of student development instruction at Gainesville Santa Fe College. In the early 90s, she collected oral histories from some of these railroad workers. I was just totally unaware of the dangers that they had to endure. 
That was what took me by surprise. Uh, I was also unaware of uh, the ingenuity and the creativity that they had. Sometimes crews would travel, working away from home for a week at a time, and staying in crude bunkhouses on wheels. Often, one of the men would act as minister to the others. He would be a lay minister. Sometimes they call him a jack-leg minister. These ministers would be there in case somebody died, and that happened many times because of the heat and the frustration. They would go in at night and lay down and not wake up the next morning, so they needed someone there to give support for that type of thing and to carry the message to the parents and to the family members that the person passed while he was working because the labor was hard. Well, he had a pretty rough car. They didn't have nothing but a pick and a shovel. It was pretty rough when you first I first started out. The hardest thing was about it was uh, working on the track, handling rail. And I think putting in cross ties was about as rough as you could get. They would jack the track up and pull them out and big hooks to pull them under the track. I think that was about the hardest in driving. Now, driving spikes was, you had to be in good shape to do that. We used to have this back with one of them 10-pound hammers. Throw it all day. When I first went out there, you didn't have no no choice. You you could work, but you didn't never get a promotion or nothing like that too much. Well, you had a white boy, and he worked two weeks. And men been working out there 20 years, and he'd come out and be assistant foreman in two weeks. And there were black guys working 20 years, seniority over him, and they never didn't make foreman assistant. But changes did come slowly to the railroads, and sometimes men were promoted to jobs on the trains. In the 1960s, Frank Johnson became a brakeman. 1966. That meant you did the manual labor, you know. The boss of the train, he was the conductor. He kept records, kept up with time. It was better working condition, but the treatment was about the same. Mostly your blacks on the railroad were, even on passenger service, they was porters you know, raid caps. You, back in those days, you didn't see no black engineer, only firemen, and then had the, the coal burners. And the fireman, he would, he would have to put the coal in. And usually the fireman's eyes would look like blood. When he retired from railroading at age 65, Willie James Polite was working as a crank hand, driving a small motorized car on the tracks carrying a supervisor between Trilby and various places around central Florida. The job could be dangerous if a dispatcher's mistake led to an encounter with a full-sized train on the same track. So it was a little difficult, you see. You had to watch. I got one or two of them tore up. We'd save some, then we'd lose some. The climate of racism finally began to abate in the 1970s for these men. But only after many lawsuits and other actions in the wake of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Today, the railroads that remain are equal opportunity employers. Machines do all the heavy work, and bicycles roll along recreational trails where Frank Johnson and Willie James Polite once sweated in the Florida sun. As we look back on railroad times with nostalgia, we need to honor and remember the hardships and contributions of these working men. It was rough when we come up, but now they got it. All they can do, they got it where they can set up on one machine. Machine do all the lifting. Where we used to have to lift them rails with, put about 12 men on, six on each end, and lift one of them rails and carry it. It changed considerable. I see it a lot in my days, but it was hard when I first started. 
For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.